which should not be a stretch of the imagination, partly because I really am enjoying Isaiah, partly because Isaiah is called the fifth gospel, so it shouldn't be any stretch to find the gospel in what Isaiah has written in his vision, in his prophecy. My only regret is that we're doing chapters 40 to 66. My only regret is that I am not able to do them in order uh, and correspond with a Christian calendar so that Palm Sunday, uh, the chapter that goes particularly well in Isaiah and Good Friday and then Resurrection, that it didn't fall uh, in that order, but that's my fault, not Isaiah's fault. Here's what we've done so far. We've done chapters 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, and then my Palm Sunday message was through the first 12 verses of chapter 52, and then just three days ago, we did the last three verses of Isaiah 52, and chapter 53, which corresponds with Good Friday, the crucifixion of Christ, there is no passage in all of the Bible that conveys theologically what happened when Jesus died, when he suffered, than the end of 52 and and all of Isaiah chapter 53. So there's also a chapter in Isaiah that it's my personal favorite chapter in Isaiah. I think it particularly plays well for a resurrection Sunday, and that is Isaiah chapter 49. So we're going to do Isaiah 49, the first 13 verses today. Next week... Instead of finishing 49, I've got to skip ahead to 50, because the week after that, I'll be here, but I'm not preaching. John will be here up from Louisville, and I told him some weeks ago, I kept telling him, I think this is the chapter you're doing, and he's like, i got to know. Like It takes him a lot longer to prepare than it does me, because I've been doing this a lot longer. And uh, so I told him the first part of 51, and ideally, I probably would have told him 50, but That being the case, I need to set up what he's going to do by doing chapter 50. So today, 49 and a half, the half of 49. Next week, we'll do 50. John will start off with 51 in a couple weeks. So in Isaiah, we have what are called servant songs. I've not played this up to this point, uh, but today I want to use that as an introduction. The servant psalms in Isaiah uh, focus on the Lord's servant. It's widely recognized, I would say even universally recognized, there are four servant psalms. Uh, There are some scholars that want to contend that there's five, but the fifth one really doesn't use the title, the Lord's servant, and so it's a little bit more of a stretch. But there's a lot of theology built around these servant, uh, these uh, servant songs. There are lots of individuals in scripture called servants. Abraham was called the servant of the Lord. David was called the servant of the Lord. Uh, Moses was called the servant of the Lord. Isaiah is called the servant of the Lord. But these these servant songs have a, a different kind of a stream. It's, it's much more elevated. It's much more concentrated. You can recognize we're not talking about any ordinary servant. We're talking about a servant in its highest sense in these servant songs. It's a designation that is not scriptural. It doesn't actually call them songs. It goes back to a German Lutheran commentator at the end of the 19th century. He wasn't a particularly good commentator. He was rather on the liberal side. But his idea of these servant songs, I think, is quite accurate. And it has been picked up and it's it's continued. So regarding these servant songs, I'm going to start off with an introduction before we get to the first song. That is in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 to 10. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 601. 
This kind of sets the stage for the servant songs. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. It's a very clear reference. And the Lord says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What we discover in chapter 41 is the Lord calls Israel, the nation, you are my servant. And it's not always going to be easy, but I will be with you. I will uphold you. No matter what happens, you can count on me. That's the introduction to these servant songs. So the first song is found in chapter 42 and verse 1. It reads like this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and a new thing I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, if you're familiar with scripture, I know you want to say, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. But in Isaiah chapter 42, that song isn't about Jesus of Nazareth, it's about Israel the nation. It's about Israel, the nation. It is Israel, the nation, who was the servant of the Lord. It is Israel, the nation, that is meant to bring justice to the world. Justice to the nations. A light to the world. That is Israel's task as the Lord's servant. And the Lord has already said, I'm going to be with you so that you are accomplishing this task. And, and the Lord had given Israel his messengers and his word, equipping them for the task. But we know Israel failed in that task because at the end of the same chapter, in verses 18 to 22, we find out that the Lord's servant is blind and deaf. So we've got a horrible problem. Because in Isaiah 42, Israel, the nation, is the Lord's servant. They're to bring light to the world. But how can the blind lead the blind? How can a people who are blind and deaf themselves bring justice to anyone? That's the problem with the servant song, the first one. 
So that takes us to our fourth servant song, where we were on Good Friday just a few days ago, chapter 52, verses 13 through all of chapter 53. Those are broken down into five stanzas, each uh, groupings of three verses. The last three verses of chapter 52 are the first stanza, and then in, in three verse stanzas, we have another revealing of the servant of the Lord. I just want to read to you the last stanza of chapter 52. So if you're in Isaiah 52, follow along at verse 13. This is the fourth servant song. It reads, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. What we understand in that fourth servant song is that a qualified individual stands in for the nation. The nation is deaf and blind. The nation isn't bringing justice to anybody. The nation isn't a light to the Gentile nations at all. But this one individual stands in for them. And he becomes the Lord's servant to accomplish what Israel wasn't able to accomplish. But how do we get from Israel being the servant to the Lord's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, being the servant? How do we get from one to the other? It's the two middle songs that begin to bridge the gap. So today we look at the second song Chapter 49 and verses 1 to 13. This is the second song which begins to bridge the gap. What we're going to do is I'm going to read the entire passage and then we're going to uh, look at a few, make a few general observations. Then I'll break it down and we'll pick out some particulars about the Lord's servant in this second song. So chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, 
to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountain a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north, and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. So that's our second song. In the second song, oh man, I messed up, didn't I? In the second song, who is the Lord's servant? Who's the Lord's servant in the second song? There's several ways to answer this. The first obvious way is in verse 3. It tells me it's Israel. It tells me straight up, the Lord's servant is Israel. And so it would be easy to make the mistake, what I believe would be a mistake, to think we're still talking about the nation. Because we're not talking about the nation. It immediately becomes clear, though he is called by the name Israel, it immediately becomes clear that this is something much bigger than the nation. Much more significant than the nation. We're talking about an individual because in verse 5, it tells me that this servant is tasked with bringing back Jacob and bringing back Israel. Israel will be gathered back to me by your work. This is not Israel fixing itself. This is the Lord's servant bringing Jacob and Israel in right relationship to the Lord God who redeemed them. The Lord God who chose them out of all the nations of the earth. It becomes immediately clear that it's also clear if you put verses 4 and 5 together that with this servant in uh, chapter 49 as he faces what seems to be uh, not particularly impressive results. And it appears, I don't know what would be the proper word, whether he seems discouraged, whether it seems as if his his efforts have been in vain. He doesn't respond like Israel responds when they don't get what they want. Because whenever Israel, the nation, experienced difficulty, whenever they experienced results that were less than impressive, they turned to idols. And they forsook the Lord their God. They forsook the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But this servant, in verses 4 and 5, though he does offer a a complaint, though he does offer that, he puts his hope in the Lord. He never ceases to put his confidence in his father. This is not the servant Israel, the blind and deaf servant. This is the individual who stands in for them. So why is he called Israel? Well, he is an Israelite. Jesus of Nazareth is an Israelite. He's born of the tribe of Judah. He's the son of David. He is the ultimate Israelite. As the ideal, ultimate Israelite, he's given the name because he is doing what the nation failed to do. He is the Lord's servant in chapter 49. Verse 1. Who is speaking? To whom? And why? In verse 1, we have, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. This is the servant himself speaking. 
The servant is speaking, and he's speaking to the coastlands, to peoples from afar. Why? Why is he talking to the most remote places on planet Earth? And the answer is because if they're ever going to hear the gospel, it requires the Lord's servant to do the job. But the problem is Israel will never bring the gospel to the coastlands. They will never bring the gospel to peoples from afar. They can't help themselves. And now you've got a servant that stands in and says, your hope will rest in me. Israel as a nation will never fulfill. They will never bring the gospel to you. But I've got good news. I'm the Lord's servant. I will accomplish what the nation failed to accomplish. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you're in a remote place, uh, if we're if we're in a situation like maybe what they had in Texas where people didn't have power for a long time, I'd rather live in the city where I am than when where the Henrys are in the country, where they're at the end of a long line of power utility poles, and they're some of the last people that are probably going to get their power restored. These coastlands, these peoples from afar, they're going to be some of the last people who ever understand that God has made a way of salvation. They're going to be some of the last people that I ever understand that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the, and the Lord's servant is crying out to them some very good news about himself. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. What do we understand about the Lord's servant from now the first two verses? We understand, first of all, that he was called from the womb. To be the Lord's servant. Jesus didn't earn the right to be the Lord's servant by a productive and a virtuous life. And he demonstrated that he was worthy. He was worthy by nature. He was God made flesh. He was born worthy. He demonstrated his worthiness. But he didn't make himself worthy by by what he did. What he said. What he taught. He was worthy by nature. Called from the womb. And his task in verse 2 is primarily an oratory task, or certainly a chief task, where his mouth is like a sharp sword. That's a prophetic task. That's what prophets were called to do, to deliver a message. And it typically was not an easy message to deliver. Most of the record of the prophets in Scripture, they faced uh, persecution, they faced opposition, they faced affliction and suffering. It wasn't an easy task. Isaiah was called to a task. In Isaiah chapter 6, he describes it. His lips were cleansed by a coal from the altar. And the Lord says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And the Lord tells Isaiah, here's what you're going to tell the people. And they're not going to listen to you. They're going to turn a deaf ear to you. They're not going to receive your message. And Isaiah's like, Lord, how long? And the Lord says, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's hard for a prophet. It's hard for any servant of the Lord. It's hard for any Christian to serve in such a way and to recognize God is king of heaven and king of earth. And you don't always get what you want. God disappoints according to our plans because God is not willing to set aside his plans which are better for our plans which are worse. But sometimes as Christians, we think if we don't get rewarded accordingly, we're not ready to serve like he wants. This servant 
in chapter 49, these first two verses, stays on task. After Jesus is baptized, he immediately goes into the wilderness to be tempted. After he comes out of the wilderness in the Gospels, he comes preaching and declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The emphasis on the, in the Gospels was never about the miracles. It never was. The emphasis in the Gospel was always on his words, his message, what he had to say. That was always the emphasis. That was the task he was given all the way back in Isaiah chapter 49. And it says that his father, the Lord, uh, hid him, hid him away in his quiver. The only, I can't tell you positively what I think, what I, I know that means. I can tell you what I think it means. I think what it means is though he was called from the womb, he spent 30 years in obscurity before he entered public ministry. I think in many regards, Christ was ready to enter public ministry early on. I think he was probably eager to begin preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but he was hidden away until the Lord's timing was right, and at age 30 he was baptized by John the Baptist, and he entered public ministry. And for three and a half years he preached, he delivered a message that quickened men's hearts or destroyed them. People either fell in line with what he had to say or they opposed him to their own detriment. That was the message of the servant of the Lord. Verses 3 and 4, He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. As a human, Jesus was fully human. He was fully God. Being fully human, I I have to believe, partly based on this passage, that he desired so much that Israel would, would receive him rightly in humility and repentance from the beginning, but they didn't. But they didn't. And he pours out this lament to his father. On the cross, he also said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Peter, it tells me that, that he suffered silently, and yet he entrusted him trusted himself to the one he, who deals faithfully. He never stopped trusting his father for a good outcome. And the good outcome is delivered because the Lord delivers a resounding reply through all the rest of those verses we read. Where the Lord says, not only are you going to restore Israel, Jacob, to me, that's not enough. I'm going to use you to bring Gentile nations to me. You will be worshipped and adored by every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. That's why I love this psalm so much. Because I'm in this psalm, or this psalm. I'm in this song. We're part of those people that are redeemed because of his work and who he is. And that's all part of the promise that was given him by his father being appointed the Lord's servant. It's a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful passage of scripture. And then it ends on this resounding note in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people. And we'll have compassion on his afflicted. You remember those that are here every week at our, at our gathering? Isaiah chapter 40 starts off with comfort my people. The last 27 chapters of Isaiah are a message of comfort to Israel. And now heaven and earth and all of creation is celebrating God comforts his people. And we're talking Israel. 
But as Israel is comforted, it brings blessing and the gospel and salvation to all the nations. All the the most remote parts of God's earth. Because God keeps his promises to his people. If God ceases to keep his promises, uh, this won't mean anything to a lot of people, but I'm a premillennialist. If God ceases to keep his promises to Israel, there may come a day where God decides the church wasn't uh, the ultimate fulfillment of his plan of redemption either. He will keep his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will keep his covenant to David. He will keep his promises to Israel. He will comfort them. Israel, Jacob, will be restored, and it brings blessing to the nations. This is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11. I've quoted it a number of times already. Paul says, speaking of the Israelites, the Hebrews, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? I mean, like, God is done with Israel. Paul says, by no means. Rather, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. We are here to make Israel jealous. We have salvation preached to us because Israel rejected the message. But it's not done. That's not the entire plan. Verse 12, now if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, we bear testimony to that. If in their rejection of the gospel it's preached to us, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How much more? What will it mean for the world when Israel as a nation is restored to the God who called them? What kind of blessing will that bring to the church? What kind of blessing will that bring to all of creation? That's what Paul's celebrating. That's what Isaiah's celebrating. God is a faithful God. He is faithful to his covenant and faithful to his promise. But all people's hope depends on their response to that man who stands in for the nation. My hope of salvation depends on that man who stands for me and bears my sin. Your hope of salvation and forgiveness depends on your right relationship to that man who bore sin on Calvary. That's what it depends on. This is between you and God, not you and your family, not you and your heritage, not you and your church tradition. It is between you and God, whether Christ stood for you or not. But I have the promise of Scripture. Those that put their hope in the Lord will not be put to shame. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. My hope of salvation, of a work that was started by what Christ did, I received by faith, it will be brought to completion because God doesn't unfinish what he has started. He will bring to completion his work of salvation. What a great word. And we're, in bonus, I'm like so on time. So there's two songs we're going to end with. The second song is, a, I put this song in late, realizing how, how what God does to Israel brings blessing to the nations. It reminded me of the song we did in VBS, uh, Let the Nations Fear Him or Celebrate Him or uh, oh, Let the Nations Praise Him. Yeah, it's a great song where all, of, all the nations are celebrating Christ's work of redemption. Let's everybody stand.